Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Okay, old favorite, hadn't been here for a while. He's been busy. He's going to tell us why he's been busy with here in just a second. Our friends from Consumer Choice Center. He's also got his own podcasting and radio gigs. David Clement is back after too long of an absence, my friend. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Okay, here's an interesting one. We've been talking about housing a lot. Uh, we've been talking about it with our UK friends where it's really getting hairy over there. We've been talking about it here in America where it's not quite to that level, but it's kind of heading that way. Canada has been having all sorts of housing issues, especially places like Toronto, Vancouver, mm-hmm. the major cities. It's which is really funny because, you know, I'm a nerd. I watch HGTVs. A lot of those HGTV house shows started in Canada and now they got to film them in Raleigh because, you know, people's like, why is this house a million dollars? It's been a problem up there. You've written about it for years that I've known you. You've got policy answers on this, but now you got kind of a personal perspective on this, too, don't you? I do. I do. So we've spent. Um, we've spent the, the better part of the last three months looking at houses um, in what you would consider the the GTA or like the outskirts, the outer outskirts of the GTA. Um, and for a long time, uh, this has been a really uncomfortable housing market price wise um, where it is just incredibly difficult um, for a variety of reasons to to get into the housing market so one prices are through the roof um then just as as a a funny kind of story um if you are a jeopardy fan uh matea roach uh canadian who who went on a really uh she i think it would be best described as a heater uh, on jeopardy um won about five hundred and sixty thousand dollars um on her run in jeopardy and someone asked her oh well what are you going to do with the the prize the prize money because that should be like life-changing um life-changing money and uh (laughs) she said well that'll that'll be a good down payment on a house in toronto um and the whoever it was who was interviewing uh, her had asked or had said wait a down payment that's not the whole thing um and no it is not the average home price at the time was uh like the median house was something like 1.15 million 1.2 million um so really high prices there are uh, laws in place um for the deposit uh, and so as soon as you get over a million dollars you have to put 20 percent down um, so you have to have 200 grand um, liquid <laughs> to put down, um, which not many young people have. Um, that it, that's like decades worth of, of savings for um, your kind of ordinary millennial who's doing well for themselves, who's kind of cost and budget conscious. Um, so it's it, it's very difficult. Um, now, some of those prices have come down recently. We're seeing a bit of a crunch with rising interest rates right now. I think a lot of people who were speculating on real estate who bought 
let's say from 2020 to six months ago uh, are feeling the pinch because the mortgage payments uh, with the rising rates don't match what you can get for rent. Um, so the idea that you could, if you can't sell a home, you can just rent it. You're you're going to eat the loss, and so we're seeing a lot of homes come come on the market um, where homes have sat empty for let's say three four months, and that is just too much of a burn rate for a lot of people to stomach. And so houses are starting to go back down; they're dipping below the million dollar mark. Uh, doesn't mean that's very it's that much more affordable for buyers because you're more, it's harder to qualify for a mortgage these days than it was two years ago. Um, with rates being what they are but we're starting to see some type of adjustment um it's not any type of collapse i would call it but we are seeing some sort of price adjustment um but not not much of an adjustment in terms of overall affordability unfortunately yeah david clement joining us here's the thing um we all talk policy stuff we're pundits this is what we do we give ideas mm -hmm. and throw stuff out there then when you got to go through it yourself it kind of changes your perspective a little bit yeah talk about that because when you actually have to do it here's the disconnect and here's something i work really hard on because it's easy to just sit here and say stuff into the microphone into the camera or write a piece and fire it off and get mm -hmm. it published somewhere that's one thing there's a real disconnect between the pundit sphere and the talking heads and especially the policy sphere which is its own separate thing where people just sit yep. and do the think tank thing and i'm not knocking them that's that's what they do no nope. there's a big disconnect between that and the average person that they're supposed to be reaching. There's a communication gap. There's, dare I say, sometimes an empathy gap of like, mm -hmm. hey, this stuff is hard to implement and even the best ideas implemented wrongly can be a disaster. Mm -hmm. Talk about that part of it. Cause like you've been talking about housing since I've met you a couple of years ago. Now yep. you went through the process. It should refine how you think about an issue like this, right? Yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway for me is, so let's say we saw 30 houses. I would say that 20 of them were vacant. Um, so that suggests to you that they were, they're investment properties. They're not, primarily speaking, they're not someone's primary residence that they're moving out of. Um, so the folks on the left kind of see that as the boogeyman. Like that's the reason why housing is so expensive um ultimately i think i downplayed the extent to which um people are speculating on real estate um so i was probably wrong in terms of how large that sec section of the market is um but what's funny is i still think that my policy prescription is is accurate to try and solve it um now some of that is is correcting for itself with rising rates um but the policy prescription i've always said because people will complain they'll be like oh on the right though the boogeyman is foreign buyers right we don't want foreign buyers we have to ban foreign buyers um on the left it's banning let's say a second property purchases or third wherever you draw the line um but realistically, I think the answer, if you want to see if those people are in air quotes bad, and I don't think they're necessarily bad, um, they're responding to incentives. If you want to stick it to them, the best way to stick it to them is to increase the housing supply and create a lot more competition um, in what's on offer in the market. And we're starting to see 
a lot more uh, effort at the provincial level on that. Uh, the the Premier of Ontario, Ontario's governor for uh, American listeners, is wanting to build over a million new homes um, to try and alleviate some of this crunch. I think that's really the best way to um, to stick it to investors or to foreign buyers um, is is to create competition where you don't see that asset inflation of 15, 20% per year. I mean, so a single family home in the greater Toronto area throughout the pandemic outperformed and all of the major um, hedge funds on Wall Street in terms of returns. Um, that is completely unsustainable. Uh, and the best way to counter that is to just increase supply so that you have more options for people looking to enter the market. But more importantly, you have more options across the spectrum for people entering the market. So if I think back to my sister's generation, she's 10 years older than me. They had the opportunity to buy something modest as their first home, live there for five or so years, have a child, kind of outgrow that house and use the equity to then move up the housing ladder. That doesn't exist at all anymore. Um, if you're a millennial and you have kids, it's essentially you're renting in that type of modest home. You're then outgrowing it and you're taking a big leap to that kind of more forever home, the type of house you could live in um, for, for, let's say, 20, 25 years. Um, so that's the uncomfortable situation a lot of folks like myself are dealing with right now is being able to make that leap, which is very tough. Um, but I do think at the end of the day, the best way to counter any of the boogeyman out there is to just increase supply and do so in a meaningful way, um, which we are starting to see some some yimby yes in my backyard pressure um, with the decision makers in, uh, in in the provinces who are ultimately the the final say on on a lot of the, the provinces and the municipalities are the final say on uh, on housing. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Yeah, David Clement joining us. You just touched on it, and I don't want to gloss over it because it's the part of the housing thing people don't want to talk about. Equity is wealth. 
and it's mm-hmm. generational wealth for a lot of folks. You know, they mm-hmm. inherit a property or they inherit the, that's not happening. That chain has been broken like you just talked about. But that's the gap is getting into the first home because once you have the first home, then you have equity to maybe get another home or to renovate the one you're in or whatever the case may be. Getting that gap in and if you have policies like bad mortgages or high risk mortgages, which makes the problem even worse, mm-hmm. that furthers that gap and it also hurts the greater market. That's the entry point of the, all the problems right here is getting those first time homeowners into a home in an affordable way. That's really the crux of this whole mess. That's where all the policy stuff, that's the rubber meeting the road, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're going to start to see over the course of 2023 is a lot of the first time home buyers who bought on a variable rate mortgage during the pandemic really feel the pinch. Um, and so you're at, like I said, your average home, let's say, and this is your, your median home, um, like your average uh, average house um, in the GTA, let's say a million dollars. Um, your mortgage rate from, let's say you got it at the lowest variable would have been 1.6 to 2.1%. You're now looking at 4.8 to 5.6%. Um, incomes have not gone up, have not doubled <laughs> in that time period. Um, cost of living has gone up in terms of the inflationary pressure on everything else, groceries, et cetera. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of those buyers reevaluate who bought what we'll now look at, we'll look back at as the top. They bought the, at the top at the cheapest they could afford uh, interest rate wise at the top. And they're going to be either stuck trying to refinance fixed at a much higher rate um, to try and lock something in that's somewhat affordable or they're just going to feel the feel the pain for a long time um, because as a lot of people don't realize that like interest rates now are nearing the historical average this is like normal interest rates not they they feel uh, exponentially high um, but in the fullness of time they're actually about average and so the people who are banking on interest rates to go back down to um, to low twos, high ones, I think are dreaming and they're going to really feel it if they don't plan financially for, for that reality. Yeah. David Clement joining us. That's a good point you bring up about the interest rates because that's been making headlines for folks that aren't following Canada politics and the economy, which is not most of the world and probably about half of actual Canadians. What's kind of the headlines that folks should actually be paying attention to? You just mentioned it. The, the, interest rates are up but if you look over them historically they're not you know outrageously up it's just comparatively up mm-hmm. there's a talk that the recession now may be deeper than they thought in canada the bank of canada has had some headlines and some press the trudeau government has obviously been talking a lot uh, quite frankly kind of scattershot about different things but they're talking about this what's the outside observer that hasn't been keeping up with canada what should they be paying attention to that's been happening in the last few months that's really going to be the top line item going through 2023, do you think? Yeah, I, 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 not to be too much of a, a doomsdayer, but I think that a recession is imminent. Um, often we'll hear from the federal government about job growth, but they'll, they'll, they'll very conveniently ignore where that job growth is. 
And so if you announce that we've overshot our job growth target, that's great. However, if 60, 70, 80% of that job growth is in the public service, that is not positive. Um, not necessarily because we don't need those jobs. Maybe we do need them. Um, but that is not the same as private job growth um, and, and wealth generation in, in the private sphere, because ultimately those salaries and those jobs are paid by taxpayers. In order to pay those, you either run higher deficits, um, which furthers the inflation problem, or you're increasing taxes at a time when people are already stretched um, on their mortgage payments, on their grocery bills, on their gas taxes, you name it. So keep an eye, I would say, uh, be skeptical of, of when some of these job figures come out in terms of where the jobs are. That's an important one. Um, I would say that inflation is probably going to linger for longer than a lot of people um, first argued. Uh, I mean, we saw the same thing with the Biden administration saying that infl this inflation is transitory. It's because of Putin. It's because of supply chains, et cetera. Some of that was, of course, true at the time, but it is not trans transitory. This is a monetary phenomenon, which it almost always is. Um, so it's going to linger for a while. Um, and unaffordability is, is going to become more of a problem and a, a political talking point moving forward. Um, th that would be my, my kind of two big takeaways on what's next. Um, and then the real question is, do the provinces have the guts to force cities to build more homes? Because that's the, the, the back and forth right now is the province says, we want to do X, but local city councilors are the decision makers. Um, and you have to create incentives or penalties for municipalities who do build or don't want to build. Um, and the Ford government in Ontario has somewhat done that. They've said you can't, uh, development charges on new builds, there's a cap. You can only charge so much. Um, and because of what, what municipalities were doing, and we noticed this looking at the property taxes of older homes versus newer homes, even though they were the same price, um, would be double. And so municipalities are offloading a lot of the infrastructure tax burden uh, onto new builds where your property taxes will be double from the get-go. Um, in order to try and prevent having to raise property taxes on existing residents. And that's creating really weird um, mismatch where like so much as crossing one road can make a difference property tax wise. Although both houses are 900,000 or a million or 1.1 million, one will have a $6,500 a year municipal tax bill. The other will have a $3,500 a year municipal tax bill. Um, so we're going to see some some pressure from provinces to really force cities to get their act together. Uh, and then what happens from that is the big question.
David Clement joining us. Is that you just kind of touched on it? Is the provinces and the municipalities and the big cities and the governments is that the primary dynamic to keep an eye on right now? Because it feels like, especially the last since the end of the COVID restrictions, let's just go back that far. Mm-hmm. Although they, this is lingering stuff that's always been there to some level. Is that the dynamic to really pay attention to? Because it does seem like that's been elevated quite a bit, at least in the last year or so, both politically and culturally. Yeah, that is the that is the dynamic to look at because the federal government, in my opinion, is just tinkering at the margins. Um, they don't necessarily have a role to play. It's not technically in their jurisdiction to handle much of housing, but there's a lot that the federal government now does that isn't in their jurisdiction at all. And yet they do do it anyway. Um, like the Trudeau government's dental care announcement that is not in the federal government's purview at all. Um, same with their childcare announcement completely outside of the realm of what the federal government is supposed to do. And yet they're still doing it. And so if we've crossed that bridge, I don't see any justification for not, adding housing targets into it. And I've long argued that if the Trudeau government was serious about getting municipalities to build, they would just withhold federal infrastructure money um, based on growth targets for especially these high demand areas. Um, They haven't really, the Trudeau government has has taken kind of a lukewarm approach to that. not there's not much teeth to it the conservative leader pierre polyev has been a little more aggressive where he said cities over five hundred thousand would be under some essentially some set of review where they have to meet a certain target or they don't get federal funds which is a lot for these big cities because they rely on the federal government to help build things like subways and major infrastructure and transit and road expansion and all of that um so Either the federal government needs to be much more aggressive or the provincial government is going to have to pick up whatever slacks left behind and and put that pressure on the cities to to get this done. Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center, uh, all kinds of stuff he does writing and broadcasting wise. You mentioned it. We're seven years, almost to the day, seven years into Justin Trudeau now. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we got a long track record here. He's mm-hmm. got, you know, two years or so before he's up again. Where are we at with him? Is there Trudeau fatigue? Is there a bit of a rut that this administration seems to be in a little bit? They're past the COVID stuff now, but the economy's not doing super great. People seem a little, you know, they're not up in arms over it, but there is some discontent. Look, at some point, if you got a sports team, you've heard all the coaches' speeches, you've heard all the jokes, you've heard yeah. all the motivational stuff. It kind of feels like we're kind of at that point with Justin Trudeau now. We've seen kind of everything in his repertoire. What does he do here going forward, do you think? So under normal circumstances, I would say that, yeah, this is this, this would probably be the last go for Trudeau and that the liberal – like if I was in the executive committee for the Liberal Party, I would be starting the process of – okay, when is he going to make an announcement that he's stepping aside? Uh, When are we going to have a a leadership race to kind of revamp party membership and and get things moving again? The liberal partisans, especially the ones on Twitter, hate it when I say this, Uh, but the liberal party in Canada very much mirrors 
what the Republican Party looked like under Trump, where I think they will stay on board until the ship has fully sunk. When that is, I do not know. Um, but just so much of the party is around one person um, and revolves around one person that there seems to be a reluctancy to move on. If if I was a liberal partisan, I would be one of the people who would be putting pressure on on the party to um, to pass the torch. Um, they have really good voter efficiency. Uh, so because we have a first-past-the-post system with multiple parties, the liberals do a very good job of winning competitive ridings with 31, 32, 35% of the vote. Um, the conservatives do not have as good uh, of, of voter efficiency as the liberals, and they're really the only other party who could form government. Um, so you can get 90% of the vote in Fort McMurray, um, but realistically, and this is no criticism to the fine people of Fort McMurray, um, every vote over that 50% mark is um, has no electoral advantage for the conservatives, which is why the conservatives have won the popular vote two elections in a row. Um, but not formed government. Um, so some of that, I think, is is weighing on on maybe some of the reluctancy to start the retirement party for for Trudeau. Uh, but I think it's it's necessary if I'm forecasting. If we continue to see increases in crime in major cities, and and some of it is hysteria, but some of it is very real. Um, in the greater Toronto area and Vancouver, and we start to see the recession kick in and people lose their jobs or uh, and, and things like that, or lose their homes as a combination of the two, um, that, is, that is a ripe time for a conservative to come along who is fiscally minded, who is maybe more of a law and order candidate um, to attract the, the middle centrist voters in, in the suburbs, which is what the conservatives need so if i see that on the chessboard you have to be having a conversation within the party if you're a liberal and say okay well how do we counter this because there is the fatigue is only going to get worse the economic turmoil will most likely continue to get worse um, and the other factors at play here should um mean that that the it in theory, it would be the conservatives' election to lose, um, but they are also notoriously good at losing elections that are theirs to lose. So, um, I'm not putting. Uh, I, I'm, I'm. I wouldn't take that statement to the bank. Yeah, David Clement. I, that's a universal principle. I think snatching yeah. victory from the you know jaws of defeat and then putting it right back down the gullet of defeat. Um, an interesting sideshow to some of that. One thing that affects all Canadians, of course, is Canada's national health care system. Mm -hmm. We we use it in America as a, you know, as both a mot and the Bailey for healthcare discussions, but you all actually have to live with it, deal with it, and handle it. Yep. Interesting crack in the system here. Doug Ford, the premier, of course, of Ontario, who's an interesting mm -hmm. character in his own right that you love to talk about. I do. Is having a little bit of a foray into privatized health care. Now, Trudeau's kind of really keeping an eye on this and he's made some wide swath statements here it's a small thing it's a little thing i don't know how much it'll amount to anything but it is an interesting thing mm -hmm. we'll see how it pans out um in terms of 
what it actually looks like in practice. But the idea is that we just have private service providers uh, or alleviating all of the backlogs that we see for a lot of the minor, somewhat minor surgeries and things like that, routine scans, MRIs, um, and, and things that kind of fall into that category. And for American listeners, an example of like how severe it can be. Um, so it's anecdotal, but it's my own. This was before COVID. These problems in the healthcare system are not um, are not COVID specific. Um, they were exacerbated by COVID, but they've existed for a long time. I had to have a minor uh, sinus surgery. I think I went in. So from the time in which I first got referred from my doctor to the specialist was about six months. I went to the specialist and she said, okay, are you available for surgery? And she gave me a date. It was like March 2019. And that was eight months from when I saw the specialist. So we're talking well over a year total time from like the, the I have a problem that needs needs fixing to actually going under the knife. Um, now, for me, it was an inconvenience. It wasn't debilitating. Uh, but you have people who, let's say, don't have the luxury of working like I do um remotely uh and with with it with a laptop let's say you <laughs> you work outside you you build homes you do all of those very important jobs and you tear an mcl you can't really afford to wait nine 12 months for surgery that's a that needs to happen now and so if we can get closer to those things happening now it's going to be a huge benefit and the way the ford government is saying is there's no out-of-pocket expense they're just billing the province it's still single payer. Uh, these private uh, private clinics, doctors, et cetera, are just billing the province through your OHIP card, which is your provincial health card. Um, so when framed like that, I think it could be very good. How it how it pans out, I'm the jury is still out. Um, but if if we have more options to use our healthcare dollars essentially um, to get quicker service. That is a huge plus. Yeah, David Clement joining us. The thing is, to the American audience, that's like, well, that's how it's supposed to work. Problem is there's folks, especially certain uh, Canadian politicians, that think this is absolute heresy and have basically called it as much. I know our British friends joke about the National Health Service over there being the official state religion. I don't mm -hmm. think it's quite that bad in Canada, but some of the reaction here, you would think it certainly was, you know, calls for inquisition on why in the world are we putting this crack in the wall? It's a culture divide with a U.S. audience to why that would be so harsh to y'all. Yeah. But just kind of explain why that's such a throwback, because it goes back to those other things we're talking about. You know, who's controlling funding, providential government, federal government. There's a lot of layers to these sorts of things, isn't there? There are. And I think for the people who are up in arms about this, they view it as the Americanization of healthcare, which it is not. If anything, it's the Euro it's more of a European model. And Canadian politicians who 
want healthcare to be 100% public, meaning from the, the insurance card that you have to the doctor that you go to, to the surgeon, to the literal building in which you have that surgery to be owned by the government. Um, this is, this, they're, they're up in arms and, and they think this is crazy. But if you look at your, they conveniently forget that Europe exists um, and that virtually every country, including the UK, um, has some sort of option to allow for private care to fill um, the void or fill the, the gaps where we have long wait and terrible care and all of that. So um, they always look at the US and they'll, they'll share like, oh, this woman gave birth and she got the bill and it was like 70 grand. Like, how is it working? Like, do we really want this in Ontario? It's like, well, no, that's not what, that's not what anybody is advocating for. It's more of a shift towards what Europe does, which is a blend of the two. In many systems, you have single payer, but the hospital may be privately owned. The clinic may be privately owned. They build the province accordingly, or they build the build the state accordingly, and you get quicker um, quicker care. And for Canadians who really care about the universality, they can't separate you, the fact that you can have universality without the government actually owning the hospital. They think that it all has to be the same. Um, and that's just, it's just not true if you get the, the uh, horse blinders off and you take a look at how healthcare is run around the world. Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center. Uh, for those of us that only periodically check in with Canada, either our neighbors or north or the worldwide audience, you know, look, we only got so much bandwidth and we got our own messes. Give us one or two things to be on the lookout for. I know we already talked about things like the economy and the housing and the healthcare stuff. What's one or two things to just kind of bookmark that may cut through on to more of the American or the international audience down the road a little bit, but we should bookmark it now like, hey, go ahead and kind of tab this one out because you're going to be hearing from it here down the road a little bit. So I think crime is a big one because with now our sensitivity to crime is our bar for our sensitivity to crime is a lot lower than in the US. And so I don't have the numbers on me, but if I were to quote the numbers, most American listeners would be like, well, that's that's like one twentieth of Chicago. That's not a that's not a crisis or a problem. Um, but we are seeing an increase, especially in the greater Toronto area of random crime. Uh, there was one in Toronto where a group of I think five or six teenage girls beat a homeless man to death um now that's a headline and it's anecdotal but then you couple that with like an increase in things like carjackings very violent like in your face uh crime um and it starts to become something that is then a, a topic of discussion politically um things like the re-release of violent offenders is another common one where in many instances, the, the criminal justice reform world gets lost. Um, and, I, and I say this because I'm definitely in the criminal justice reform world in terms of victimless crime, uh, but I'm certainly not in regards to violent crime. And you'll have instances where people will be granted early release for a variety of reasons, overcrowding or in air quotes, compassion, 
and then they reoffend in a violent way. Um, as that continues to happen, it becomes campaign fodder for the conservatives. And so I think we'll see that become more of a talking point. Um, not to the same not to US levels, but it will become a, a, a major conversation. Yeah, David Clement, Consumer Choice Center, been a friend of ours for since the beginning. I started doing broadcasting and writing, which I appreciate greatly, sir. I didn't throw you your softball about liquor in Canada. We'll talk about oh, yeah. that next time. But until we get you back on again, it won't be as long this time, I promise. Uh, let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you got going on and follow you until we get you back on Hertel again. Yeah, so um, you can follow me on Twitter at Clement Liberty. Uh, the organization's website is consumerchoicecenter.org, uh, where we talk about uh, internationally basically how things impact consumers, everything from sin taxes to free trade to how do we handle uh, how do we handle companies like Huawei. Um, so lots uh, lots of good uh, content there on the policy side, uh, both in the United States, Canada, and, and the rest of the world. Yeah, you do good work, sir. We always enjoy the conversation. David Clement, appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.